Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, licensed professional counselor. My guest today is Kathleen McLaughlin. She is an award-winning journalist who reports and writes about the consequences of economic inequality around the world. She is a frequent contributor to the Washington Post and The Guardian. McLaughlin's reporting has also appeared in The New York Times, BuzzFeed, The Atlantic, The Economist, NPR, and more. She is a former Knight Science Journalism Fellow at MIT and has won multiple awards for reporting on labor in China. Blood Money is her first book and is the topic of today's podcast. You may wonder why I'm having a journalist on this show about psychology and philosophy, a journalist investigating America's blood industry. Well, basically, as a community, all of these things affect our mental health and our views of the world and what type of community we want to live in. And she turns the lights on a healthcare crisis hidden in plain sight and a stunning example of economic inequality in action. Of course, this is intermingled with her own story as a working-class American managing a chronic illness. She finds an industry that targets and exploits America's most marginalized communities to feed the industry's hunger for human blood plasma to the tune of over 20 million pay-for-plasma extractions each year. American blood, as we are just one of five nations worldwide to allow this practice is extracted, processed, and packaged for a sale as part of a $30 billion global industry. And there is more to say about this, and you will enjoy her on this episode of The Intentional Clinician. If you are looking for a medical billing company with ethics and excellent customer service, and you are in the mental health industry, check out Therapist Billing Services. Therapist Billing Services was created by therapists for therapists. Whether you're a group practice or an independent part-time practitioner, Therapist Billing Services can help you with all the complexities of billing and making sure that your clients have what they need and that you get paid for your services. Check us out at www.therapistbillingservicesllc.com. All right, now let's get to the interview. Welcoming to the Intentional Clinician Podcast, we have Kathleen McLaughlin here to talk about her new book. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So I've been reading your book, Blood Money, The Story of Life, Death, and Profit Inside America's Blood Industry. And I have to tell you, I didn't really know almost anything about this topic before I read this book, and I have learned quite a bit um, and I, I think people really enjoy this, but it, uh, it really was stunning to me, uh, of, of the whole industry and, and the effects on the country. So I, I'm curious about, you know, I know how you got into this cause I've read the book, but I was curious if you could talk a little bit about what got you interested in, in researching this topic. Of course. Yep. So about, 20 years ago, I was diagnosed with a rare nerve disorder. It's actually an autoimmune disease that, um, in which my immune system attacks the wrong parts of my body. The treatment for my illness is a medication that is called intravenous human immunoglobin 
Um, and it is made from the immune particles that are found in other people's blood plasma. So human immunoglobin, known in shorthand as IVIG, is one of the most common medications that is made from human plasma. So all of these plasma centers you see all over the country, um, a good portion of the product that that plasma that's being extracted is going to make is the medication that I rely on. And over the years I've had, so I have, I require treatment. It depends on, you know, what my illness is doing, but if I'm having a flare up, I might need to have treatment once every five to six weeks. So over the years, I have spent many, many hours sitting in a chair, having infusions of a drug that's made from other people's plasma and always wondering who are these people that donate plasma or sell plasma? Because we know all about blood donors. That's a really kind of open topic in American society. I think people are very proud of donating blood, especially if they're a frequent donor. Um, but we talk less about plasma donation and selling plasma. So I was very curious to try to learn who these people are that are providing the substance that is made into my medication. That's what kind of launched me into this book was trying to figure out where this thing that keeps me or, or allows me to have a normal life, where in the heck it comes from. I think that's a pretty uh, good reason to get involved in researching it. And I, I think many of our listeners uh, may have heard of plasma centers. And I had heard of one recently um, where my clinic is in Grand Rapids. And I had heard people saying, oh, I went to donate plasma and they paid me $50 or something like that. And I didn't really understand what it was. I knew it had something to do with blood. Um, and in these plasma centers, people are paid for an amount of blood that's extracted from them and then they spin it through some machine and extract the human plasma versus a blood donor. Um, you hear people say, oh, I donate to Red Cross. I go to their blood drive and I'm donating this and they're very happy about it and they have a sticker and they they go to you know meetings and things like this. But plasma is a whole another different story. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you know the process is maybe for the average donor. Yeah, sure. So just for background, um, there are three body parts, I guess, that you want to call them. There are three things that you can be financially compensated for in the United States, and that is sperm, eggs, and blood plasma. You can't sell anything else, any other part of your body. Those are the three things. Um, and how we came to that it's very unclear, but those are the rules that we have set. And our rules are very different than most of the rest of the world. Um, the United States is one of only five countries in the world that allows payment for blood plasma. And because of that, we have become um, one of the world's leading exporters of plasma. They call us the OPEC of plasma because we are swimming in it. So plasma is essentially the protein component of your blood. Um, and how this works is if you go into a plasma donation center, they will pull out your whole blood, spin it into a centrifuge, which separates the blood into parts. So it separates it into the yellowish liquid protein component, which is plasma and your red and white blood cells and platelets, which are then reinfused into your body. So when you are donating or selling plasma, you are only giving up the liquid protein component of your blood. Because you're not giving up whole blood, you can do this more often 
potentially without ill impacts on your health. I think blood donation is limited to something like eight times a year. Um, you can do plasma donation much more frequently. Now, to be clear, you can donate plasma at the Red Cross if you have a certain blood type, if you live in a certain part of the country, and you won't be compensated for it. And it's just part of the, you know, the purely altruistic side of blood and plasma donation. The Red Cross does do some of this. Most of the plasma that is collected in the United States and made into medications that are prepared and sold around the world um, goes through these for-profit plasma centers. Um, and those are the, the places that pay people for their plasma. But if you're a, a plasma donor, you can make several hundred dollars a month selling plasma if you do it on a frequent basis, which the, the maximum is twice a month and you, or I'm sorry, twice a week, every week. And you can do that 52 weeks a year. So essentially the, the plasma companies are trying to get people to come in as often as possible. And that's the max 104 times a year. Oh goodness. Yeah. And that has possible health effects on people though. I think it seems like the research is still kind of pending or if there's even like a, a, kind of a push for research. It wasn't really clear. Uh, it seems like people were talk. Some people said, oh yeah, I feel very tired. I don't feel too good afterwards. Or other people said they didn't feel too much, but it, it is still, you know, taxing on the body. Uh, you were talking about in the book, as the economic gaps in the United States have widened, um, and there were fewer than 300 plasma centers in 2005, and now more than 1,000 in 2021. And they are often yeah. in strip malls. Yeah, so yeah. they've tripled in the last in the last fifteen years. They've tripled in number. Yeah, so and that's that's quite a few. So there's a lot to be said about this plasma donation and kind of the whole journey that it takes into these global entities that then make you know different drugs and products and and then market them, uh, and so. I guess I was curious. There, there's a lot more to this story. Uh, you you started out talking about some of the, what was going on in China with a few doctors you met that were in an epidemic where uh, the government in China was not necessarily possibly embarrassed about HIV and different things getting into the blood. Do you want to talk a little bit about that background? Maybe that drew you in? Sure. So I was a foreign correspondent in China for 15 years. And during that time, I did a lot of reporting around a health catastrophe that had occurred in that country because of paid plasma donation. So back in the 1990s, um, one provincial government in China, in central China, and kind of one of the poorer provinces, had decided they were going to create something called a plasma economy in which they would pay poor people for their blood plasma and turn that into medicines for export. So they plan to make basically build an export economy around the blood proteins of poor people. Um, and, and the reason China saw this, among other things, one of the reasons they saw the potential in this is there, at that time, there was a very low rate of HIV and AIDS in China as compared to other countries. And so they felt that their blood supply was safer and they could market it as being this safe blood supply that hadn't been contaminated by HIV and AIDS. Unfortunately, um, HIV did get into the plasma economy system pretty quickly. They were 
they had ramped up this system very quickly and farmers from all over the province were coming in to sell their plasma. They were using unsafe collection practices. So sharing needles, sharing tubing amongst people. Um, and basically HIV got into the system and spread like wildfire. There were tens of thousands of poor people in one province who were infected with HIV, contracted AIDS, and then died because of the plasma economy. So two doctors from that province basically began investigating what was going on and uncovered the facts. And they told their higher-ups, they told the central government in Beijing, they essentially blew the whistle on what was happening. It took several months for the Chinese plasma economy to get shut down, for all the clinics to be shut down and the practice to be abolished. Um, and both of these doctors eventually ended up living in exile in the United States. So I had been doing a bunch of reporting on these events that had happened years previously, because it's something that the Chinese government still is not open about. We still don't have an official count of how many people were made sick, how many people died, what the implications were. So I continued to do reporting on this long after it had happened. And when I came back to the U.S. in about 2016, I went to Salt Lake City to meet one of the doctors who had been the primary whistleblower in the system. And we spent several days together. And she eventually kind of led me down the path of looking into what was going on in the United States. She had seen these plasma centers around her in Salt Lake. She was, after what she had seen in China, she was appalled to know that the U.S. was running a very similar system. And so she urged me to investigate what was going on here. Now, I should say, um, just to be very clear, the odds of anyone contracting HIV or a similar virus or illness through plasma donation in the U.S. are close to nil. And that's because the blood, uh, people who donate are screened pretty heavily um, before they are allowed to. But more than that, the product is heat treated and that kills viruses. Beyond that, if you're donating plasma, you tend you will get your own needles and equipment out of a sterile package in most places, and you'll get a single-use centrifuge. So even the machine that you're using is only being used on you, one person at a time. Um, but her concern, the doctor's name was Wang Shupeng, her concern was just that the exploitation or potential coercion of people by getting them to donate plasma through paying them led to all sorts of um, negative consequences or potential negative consequences. And she felt that there were ethical problems with the system. So she's kind of the one that launched me into all of this. Um, unfortunately, she died suddenly a couple of years ago of a heart attack. So she never got to see my book or the results of the investigation, but she was really responsible for, you know, leading me down that path. And it might not seem like China and the U.S. are connected in these ways. But to me, you know, when I lived in China all those years, I thought it was very kind of dystopian science fiction that China was trying to create something called the plasma economy, which was centered around the blood of poor people. But the fact was the United States created it. So I had this really naive idea that, oh, this is only something that China would try to do. But the fact was the U.S. did it and we have it and we own it now. Well, and it's 
you know, coming from the lens, you lived there, but coming from the lens of an American, you know, who I've never lived in China, you know, uh, what we see, what I kind of saw from when I was reading the book was like that the government had kind of been like, hey, let's do this. Like it was an economic project. Right. Well, the U.S. does all sorts yeah, of economic definitely. projects regionally all the time. You know, we have all these regional things like microchips and these, these different things. But um, things like this, we just possibly don't maybe tout as, you know, we're not touting this as some sort of achievement where maybe that government was trying to like say, hey, right. we're going to build this economy. And then it kind of blew up on yeah. them. But, uh, you know, we have that here. It's I just think that's true. Quiet. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just more yeah. quiet. Here. Well, and also it is. And it's this is unsavory to a lot of people. The idea that we are paying poor people for their body parts is rightfully unsavory to a lot of people. And so I don't think, and also the other piece of it is these things are, you know, it's happening in the U S with private industry. The government itself is not running plasma centers. So that was one of the big differences in China is the plasma centers were run by the government itself. And here it's private industry doing it, but yeah, it's the same kind of regional economic development through capitalism. It's just a different agencies or different organizations in charge of what is going on, but really remarkably similar things. Yeah, remarkably similar, except that in the U.S., there's kind of these more quiet global national health companies running it privately, and they frame the psychology is that it's these people's choice. It's like a benefit to them that they get to do this, where in China was clearly saying, hey, these poor people, we're going to create this economy, we're going to do this, and it was more of like a like a system-led thing, where here it's more, like you said, a capitalist private industry. But I want to show how pe how large it is, and you talk about in the book. You said in 2021, American blood products accounted for more than 24 billion in worldwide sales, and were 2.69 percent of the country's total exports. That's a higher percentage than soybeans and several other crops that are sold overseas. A substantial portion of the blood plasma used all around the world comes from the veins of people in the United States. And so we kind of kind of covered that, but we're talking also a little bit about uh, we're talking a lot about economic inequality. It runs through this book, kind of like one of the threads, and where these plasma centers are placed strategically are where perhaps people are needing extra money because um, whatever for whatever reason in that region there may not be as much wealth or um, ways to make money. Yeah, definitely. So you see plasma centers, big clusters of plasma centers in places like the Rust Belt, you know, former industrial strongholds of the United States that are now fallen on economic hard times. You'll see big clusters in college towns where you have big universities with large student populations full of college kids who don't have a lot of money. You'll see clusters all along the U.S.-Mexico border. And the reason for that is Mexican citizens can come across into the U.S. and sell plasma and earn an income which is higher than they earn back home. You won't find plasma centers in wealthy neighborhoods. You won't find them in places where people are you know, well-to-do and making decent incomes. And what's been really interesting to me in reporting and writing this book is talking to people about it as I'm doing it. And friends and family I have who might be better off economically have never heard of this practice. Whereas people I know who are less 
advantaged um, and have been poor or broke, they know all about it. So there's really this divide, I think, in the U.S. of like selling plasma. If you have ever struggled financially, you may have done it, or you at least know about the possibility of doing it. If you are someone who is there's also an age difference here because if you're, I would say over 50, maybe it wasn't, it didn't used to be so common. So you may not have heard of it, but if you've never been broke, you probably don't know anything about it other than a scattered news story here and there. But for a lot of people who live in places like the Rust Belt or, you know, um, less well-to-do parts of the South, this is just a part of life. I mean, the plasma center is in the strip mall where the dollar store might be and, the furniture store, you know, the cheap furniture store. It's these businesses that pop up in places that are struggling economically. And the Plasma Center has just become one of those. It's really, I think, embedded itself in American society as we've lost our social safety nets. Yes, that is definitely a good point. And you you have a lot of things to say about that in the book. You've interviewed people in the South and you spent time in Michigan where I'm from. And in fact, Lansing, Michigan, you spent mm-hmm. t- some of a whole chapter covering some people that were from there. And uh, interestingly, in the book, we were t- I was talking about this before the interview when you told me that a person had a pretty, quote unquote, decent job as a uh, person working in a news station as a reporter and they did not have enough money to make ends meet after college. And so they were a reporter giving plasma uh, at a local place just to afford kind of the gaps in their income, which which definitely harkens to a larger topic of what's going on with, you know, the average middle class income. But um, it, it's interesting because in the book, you're also talking about the way these companies frame it right? They're framing it as a donation. Mm-hmm. It's not a donation. It's an extraction mm-hmm. that you're being paid for. And right. interestingly, in one of the chapters you talk about, they're paid per extraction or donation. They're not paid per hour and for the time it takes. And they're also not paid per, um, you know, the loss of energy or something, because some people have a negative effect the next day, their body kind of has to recover. So, um, I was curious if you wanted to delve into that a little bit about, um, your, your feelings or thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was very revealing to me in this reporting is I had expected to kind of learn that most of the people who sell plasma are very poor, uh, you know, the poorest of the poor. Um, and that's often not true because the poorest of the poor are very often screened out of the system for different reasons. For example, you cannot be unhoused and sell plasma. You have to have proof of a residence. So you cannot be homeless and selling plasma. Um, What I found instead were just loads of middle-class people who are working full-time, but it's not enough money to have the life they want to live. So in the case of the television reporter in Michigan, um, for her, you know, she was, she's really at the beginning of her career. And I've met a number of people who are just starting out in their careers and they're not making enough money to quite make it. And this is where selling plasma comes in. So she was earning a decent income, but it wasn't quite enough. And so she was depending on selling plasma to buy groceries, you know, and this is someone who 
30 years ago, if she had been starting out in local television news, probably would have made something closer to a living wage. Now it's a struggle for what used to be a middle-class job to actually live on that in a middle-class sort of way. So I've met people who have sold plasma to pay for vacations. I've met people who sell plasma to pay off student loans. I've met people who sell plasma literally to buy groceries, which is what this young woman was doing. Um, and I think that, you know, we see these statistics, right, about wages no longer keep pace with the cost of living. And you can see that statistic over and over and over. But it doesn't really mean anything until you meet people who are literally selling their body parts to make up the difference, right? So that, to me, was a major revelation that it is in in a lot of people's minds. I've never sold plasma primarily because I can't. I'm a recipient of blood products, and so I'm banned from doing it. But I think in a lot of people's minds... It, you have this notion that people who do this are the poorest of the poor, and it simply isn't true. Um, as far as the health impacts, that's pretty interesting. So anecdotally, I have heard from a lot of people that it makes them feel very sick. And you'll you'll hear primarily that it causes like severe exhaustion. So people get really, really tired. One person described it to me as bone crushingly tired. Um, someone else told me that after donating, they passed out in their car. I've heard that several times, people passing out after selling plasma. So in a way, it kind of makes sense. You're having this big amount of fluid extracted. And we all know that protein is very important to staying healthy. So you're having your proteins removed from your body. So there are people who feel very sick afterwards, but they continue doing it because they need the money. Um, and they're told over and over repeatedly, it's innocuous, it's safe, it's not going to do anything to you long-term. But I think also people know their bodies. And if it doesn't feel right, they don't quite trust the system. There hasn't been, to my thinking, enough long-term study of what this might do to a person's body. There's a couple of long-term studies of people who've donated plasma for years on end. Um, and one of them has shown that it does deplete your protein levels over the long-term. Of course it does. But I don't think there has been enough study of what this might do to a person's health. So there's all sorts of kind of related questions to it, but because it's not something we talk about, it's not something we acknowledge as being very common and widespread, I think that there hasn't been a good national conversation about if we're paying people enough, what the potential health consequences are, and if this is something we want to continue to rely on, um, you know, as part of our, as I guess, as part of the American middle class right now, because that's really what it has become is a, a tool of being middle class in a lot of ways. Yes, I think that is a reality that has, it's not something that's, you know, publicly on the news as much about the way the middle class is declining, because it's not just like, it's a, it's kind of a concept, right? It's a concept, this middle class. Yep. And so right. when like little things get stripped away, or we see that wages haven't kept pace with inflation, but profits have skyrocket or CEOs make $17,000 an hour and somebody making a hamburger makes $10 an hour. And we can't believe they would have the audacity mm -hmm. to ask for $15 an hour. These sort of concepts 
are because right. things partly this the confluence of factors that I'm not an economist, but the confluence of factors that I see anecdotally are are very vast, including the fact that you know the way we do business in the U.S. is is very specific to extracting a profit outside of our cost, right? And so whatever way you can do that, if you can make a stream of profit past all of your costs and all of your expenses, then you are deemed successful, right? And the success of that usually comes at the cost of someone else buying into your model to work for you, right? And so that sort right. of being from Michigan, the whole workers' rights of uh, you know the unions and GM. My uh, one of my grandfathers worked at GM fifty years, and when he passed away, he had a wow. ton of money. Like we were surprised. Everyone was wow. surprised. Everything yeah. was paid off. His cars were paid <laughs> off. He lived in two states. Amazing. You know, it was phenomenal, and that was working yeah. in the factory. Yeah. He was not a corporate. He was a blue collar. Right. And. And so in yeah. his mind, even in the 90s, when I would talk to him and things were starting to change a little bit, he had no concept of why college would cost so much, right? Why would you why would you go to college? Why wouldn't you just go work at the factory? Because yeah. I'm like, well, they're still paying right. and they're, they're paying you what they paid you in 1977. That's what they're paying now, but everything costs more. Like it's kind of simple, exactly. but yet- it's hard when you, you know, you haven't gone through it. So I think the young people today are going through that is that everything costs more, but these wages sound familiar. They sound enticing. And even further down, we have this sort of weird gray area of this plasma and the blood industry, because these companies are making billions in profits, you know, beyond their costs of making the drug, beyond the export yeah. tax, beyond whatever marketing they have to do to, to get it. And on the positive side, they're benefiting people like you. But on the negative side, you sure. talk about how much the drugs, you know, they're saving people's lives. But how much did this drug cost you? And I think you, I can't remember what you said in the book. How much did it cost per year for these treatments? Well, okay. So my current, um, my latest bill, and this is actually updated from when the book was written because it goes up every year. My latest cost is $13,000 per dose. So if I need... 10 doses in a year, and that looks likely this year, it's going to be $130,000 for one year for one person. Now, it's not a one-to-one. -one. My drug is, I'm not, you know, taking plasma directly from one person who's getting 40 bucks a pop, but there's a lot of profit going on in the middle there. And, you know, it, it seems not right to me that we aren't able to figure out how much that is, who's making it, and if that's something we're okay with. I mean, the other part to know about this industry is that several of the big players in the plasma industry are not American-based companies. I mean, they have American subsidiaries, but of the three biggest companies, one is based in Spain and one is based in Australia. So this is really a multinational business that's centered around the blood of American people. So these companies own plasma extraction centers all around the United States. Um, the decisions about how those are run, the decisions about pricing, how much Americans get paid for their plasma are made outside of our borders. And the profits are also extracted to other countries as well. So this isn't just, you know, American companies being... Um, craven or profit-driven. It's really a whole global business that's centered around Americans' blood. And that, to me, is, again, 
one of these things that we really should be questioning instead of just accepting it as well. I guess that's the way things are. But it's like you said, you know, I mean, I spent a lot of time in Flint, Michigan. Um, and one of the things that just stuck with me is the old GM, one of the big old GM auto plants there that's mostly shut down now, you know, right across the street from it, there's the plasma center. So where used to be this place that thousands of people were like your grandfather and they could make this great middle-class living, save money, raise families, buy a home, have a decent life. Now, one of their main options is to go to the plasma center in order to make up the difference. So we've lost all of these gains, I think, that were made in, in the last century by the labor movement and collective action and all of these other things. And in their place, we have got predatory industries that know that Americans are broke, that know that people need more money to get by because things are insanely expensive now compared to what they used to be. And they're popping up all over in places like Flint where these problems are greater than most. So yeah, Michigan was a real eye-opener for me and, and for the reasons that you mentioned, which is you just know it as this place that's known as kind of the birthplace of the American middle class. And it was really a place where workers didn't have to go to college in order to have a perfectly lovely middle-class existence and it's just not possible anymore yes it, it's almost as if if we go high concept here it's it's as if yeah. letting these companies operate and have private gains which who knows who's benefiting from that what stock what people hold these stocks and who actually gets dividends and who's in the boardrooms making these decisions and then how that trickles down to management. We don't even know. And now a lot of the money's going out of the country. We're having like mm -hmm. a public loss. And also because of our public loss of other, many other industries and many other private decisions, we are also experiencing then these companies go, coming in and saying, oh, well, let's prey on this. Let's make a payday loan company. Let's Let's, you know, not craven, but like, let's benefit on this. You know, that that's kind of that's makes right. sense. So I think one of the questions you're talking about is what is in the United States public interest or what is in the state's public interest? Is it having mm -hmm. citizens who are able to make what we call a middle? So they're not poor. They're not too not living like uh, hand to mouth. But they're not rich either, mm -hmm. but they could they could have this ideal that we kind of came up with in the U.S. of being able to, like, own a home and be able to right. get education and uh, have a, a vehicle that works or transportation. So it, that seems to be eroding because we because I do believe in our country we have an ideology of capital. We have an ideology of, of as much capital as possible is the best idea. And however you can get that profit mm -hmm. within ethical or legal, quote-unquote, means – current legal means is the way to go and people will adapt. And on one hand, that's right. People will adapt. But on the other hand, what are the large factors and, and, and consequences that are going on? And in this industry, even going further, while it, it partially, it's such a weird area because it partially helps people, right? But the way it's yeah. getting from somebody's veins in Flint, Michigan into a medication that you need to survive is wildly crazy. They're getting paid almost nothing. Somebody's taking it to a lab, producing it, yeah. doing whatever. And then somehow you have yeah. lucky enough to be having some type of insurance that you have to worry about paying and making sure you don't lose because 
you're talking about Correct. basically buying a house every year with the amount every of money year. you need to spend just to stay alive, which is crazy mm-hmm. if you think about adaptation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, no one wins in this situation, right? So my out-of-pocket costs for my insurance policy, deductibles, everything else is generally between seven and $10,000 a year. I mean, that's, I'm just saying rough average. It's a ton of money. I meet my deductible in January every year because this medication is so expensive. So no one is benefiting from this. I mean, I'm not the rich lady that's taking the blood of poor people. I'm relying on ins- I'm on a very expensive insurance policy, right? But it is, I mean, to your earlier point, what's interesting to me is this is really such an issue that affects younger people. And it's, I think, also hard for older people to kind of grasp how difficult getting by is right now. I mean, in my conversations with friends and acquaintances, since I finished the book, the people who have said to me, oh, I have scars on my arm from selling plasma have almost all been, I would say, under 35. It is so common for people who are under a certain age to do this. It's just a fact of life now. And it's really unsettling to me that we have kind of accidentally decided that this is the kind of country that we are, that we are not going to provide basic protections for college students, for younger people just starting out in the job market, that we're not going to provide them with, um, ways to make a living that don't feel coercive. So the reason that the rest of the world bans payment for plasma and the reason that the World Health Organization has actually come out against this practice is that it's coercive, that when you pay people for a part of their body, you are coercing them to give that up. And the United States has decided we're okay with that. And I think that's because it almost entirely affects people in our society who have the least amount of power. So. It's really unsettling to me that I depend on a medication that is born out of coercion, basically. Yeah, that is really a good way to put it. I don't know how to sum that up any better. I mean, I think that's that's it. It's it is unsettling, and yet it's the soup we're kind of swimming in, and and mm-hmm. it kind of goes along with the ideology of this, I sort of myth of individualism. Right. That kind of like everyone, every man for themselves, when actually when you do that, we're weaker. Right. As a society, we're weaker. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's tons of books on this about how college and things used to cost less and there was more social safety nets and and that sort of thing. And their sort of social safety nets have been turned into like uh, a punching bag for politics of, you know, a shame base, like you're not good enough. Right. And then that is bringing into people's value, uh, as a person. And what is your value as a person? Well, partly, you know, hopefully people's parents or relatives would have told them they have intrinsic value, but that doesn't happen as much as we would love. Cause I'm in psychology. So we mm-hmm. see this in our clinic all the mm-hmm. time. And then you bring that into yeah. a society level and what kind of country or what kind of world do you want to live in? Is your human value based on what you can produce or what your skills are? And if you don't have those, you're mm-hmm. sort of fired or canceled or, or is it, mm-hmm. is it based on, um, you know, being a human and, you know, working together co- uh, cooperatively. And I think that's, that's a big question, but we're seeing it sort of play out because that myth, you know, we're letting 
it, I, it might be in America's best interest to say to these companies, hey, you can still do this pay-to-play since you're already doing it, pay for plasma, but mm-hmm. we actually want you to mm-hmm. pay our citizens this much because this is how much we think they're worth. Right. And then, right. but then of course, right. then that trickles down because you said you have to pay for this healthcare yeah. policy. And then yeah. that is affecting everyone else who's, you know, on those healthcare policies, including yeah. you. I mean, it's just, it, the effects continue, yeah. right? Well, what's interesting to me too, is that several people I've spoken with have said, well, aren't you afraid that exposing this or talking about this or criticizing this industry jeopardizes your own health because it jeopardizes your medication? But the fact is, and I think this is so important, we are a net exporter of plasma. This isn't just making drugs for Americans like me. This isn't the domestic plasma industry that is, you know, using American blood products to create medications for Americans. This is a global profitable industry where our blood plasma is being exported in massive numbers to other countries because we have this coercive system. So if we made it less coercive and we had fewer people who donated plasma because of that, maybe we would just have enough to make medications for our own system. I don't know. But I mean, that's the thing. We're not just talking about, you know, making critical medicine for Americans. This is, it's a global export and people are profiting off of it. So I think that's the important thing to keep in mind about it is it isn't just like the U.S. blood supply. The plasma industry is very different in that way. Right. And I think that, the word profit is something the American public hasn't really educated on. Like I'm in business. I own a business. Mm-hmm. I understand what profit is. And I think mm-hmm. you know, people, your average W2 worker has no idea what profit is. You are paid your wages mm-hmm. for your time or your skills. And that's it. Mm-hmm. Profit yeah. is what the company has left over after they pay you the building costs, the shipping costs, Every single possible cost, they have left over a lot of money. And then that goes to the elite people, right? Or that goes to reinvestment or whatever it goes to. It's not like, you know, oh, good old, good old Joe's plasma. They're just making a living thanks to this system. That's not what we're talking about. Yes, they're mom and pop plasma shop. No, like, yeah, maybe Joe, the yeah. manager, is making a living. You know, is saying, hey, if you come back twice a week, you get this gift card to Dave and Buster's, you know, or whatever, you know, they do these weird incentives Mm -hmm. at these plasma centers. But what we're Mm -hmm. talking about here is, you know, like you said, like kind of coercive, like taking advantage of the fact that people need this money. Mm -hmm. They find it, you know, because how many jobs can you work, right? A lot of Americans work two jobs if you're in the lower middle class. That's right. So if you don't have time, yeah. this is an easy hour or two that you spend to quick get money without having to yeah. sign up for another job. So logistically speaking, right. mm-hmm. it makes sense that you would you know stop by there to get your extra $40, $50. The issue is that are they being compensated fairly um, for that? for that because we don't even know, like you said, we're not even sure of the full long-term health effects, let alone could make them tired. So that's affecting their families. That's affecting their personal life. Um, Yet, you know, people need it to survive. So uh, need the money to survive. Yeah. I mean, it's, (laughs) 
it's almost this very like it this very weird you know we have this terrible notion in the u.s that people are supposed to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and plasma has become part of the bootstraps mentality like you know i think we have this idea that if you don't have enough money and this is something you're doing to supplement your income you just have to suck it up and do it that's what friends who have done it have told me is they hated it they didn't want to do it it didn't pay enough money but that was their only option and they felt like they had to do it they quit as soon as they were financially able to and that's a pretty common thing as well is that people don't love it and when they can stop doing it financially, they will stop doing it financially. So I don't know, we're very bad at having conversations in this country about class and equity. And um, like you were saying, profit, we're not talking about, you know, someone running a small business. These are mega multinational corporations that are profiting off of this. They're, They're essentially profiting off the economic hardship of American people. And that to me is very strange that we don't even really want to have a policy conversation about that. You know, there's no discussion in Congress or anywhere else about potential policies to make this a better system for people. Um, And yeah, to me, the part of the solution would be paying people more and maybe restricting the amount of times that people could donate. So something that's very interesting and mentioned earlier that you can donate plasma at the Red Cross um, if you are just, you know, if, if you, if the Red Cross is your place and you want to do it purely altruistically, you don't need the money and you are a certain blood type, you can donate at the Red Cross. If you donate plasma at the Red Cross, you are limited to doing it 13 times a year. That's the absolute maximum. If you donate plasma at a for-profit plasma center, you can do it 104 times a year. So why do we have that gap? What does the Red Cross know? that we're, you know, the Red Cross, because they're not profiting off of this, they can afford to take very seriously the health and safety of their donors and, you know, take the utmost precautions and be extra careful about people's bodies. But the difference between 13 times versus 104, that's not even in the same planet, those two things. So, why are we not talking about taking better care of people who do this and need to do it to survive and making, you know, making their lives a little bit easier and making the system better for them? That is a very good point because since the system started, I mean, obviously it's probably not going anywhere, but how do we make it more equitable and just uh, because it is a big deal. Like not only is it the time, it's the physical effects and that's right. You know, to be fair, to if if we care about our population, how do we protect them? Right, we have all these consumer protections on that we're starting on credit cards and mm-hmm. loans and all mm-hmm. of these sort of. You know, we're cracking down on uh, you know uh, these telemarketers that call senior citizens and lie to them about needing their social security number for identity theft, but we're perfectly okay with somebody being paid, you know, the forty dollars to sit there for a couple hours get their plasma extracted, which. If you look at U.S. labor law, is really I'm not an expert at it, but it seems kind of like a loophole because how mm-hmm. do you you know if you're a W if you're an employee it's per hour right that's how we pay people per hour and for uh, con- most contractors are paid per hour or it's like a base plus bonus or like a base salary and then if you sell so much you get a percentage of the sale so okay so like 
Now, I, I'm trying to think of another example where you just, besides like if you own your own business, obviously you make a pair of earrings and you sell those earrings, mm-hmm. right? And you mail them. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you could have spent five hours in the earrings and sell them for $20 or $80, but it's your own business, right? That's your own decision versus yeah. this thing is set up to be like, all right, show up, do all this stuff. And here's your set payment. How is, I, I'm trying to think of another example of an industry that has that. I, I can't. I don't know of any. It's a, it is an incredibly unusual industry. And I mean, it's obviously labor to me and people are obviously being paid for their labor, but it, it is mislabeled as a gratuity for a donation. You know, it's not something that you get paid for. So, and, and the other thing that is very revealing about this industry to me is the pay structure. So, it in the payments are incentivized to make you come back as often as possible. You do not get the same payment every time you donate. So, for example, you might get forty dollars the first donation of the week, and if you come back a second time in the week, you might get fifty-five. If you go eight times in a month, you get a bonus, right? So, I mean, it's these, it's it's payment that is reflective of labor. The more often you do it, the more you're getting paid. That isn't a donation. So, I I mean, to me, it's like. You know, it isn't the industry isn't going to go away. We're not suddenly going to roll back and say, oh, the United States no longer allows people to be paid for plasma donations. That's not going to happen. But what we should be doing is, like you said, looking at paying people more and how to make this better for people and potentially how to kind of alleviate some of the concerns that people have about long term health impacts. I have talked to several people who've read the book and been very concerned that they might be looking, you know, they sold plasma for a couple of years in college and they don't know what it did to their bodies. And maybe in 20 years, it might be causing a problem. So why aren't we doing more to protect them from, you know, potential impacts, or at least doing more study to bear out that there aren't any risks? Why is the Red Cross so much more protective of people's health and allows donation much less frequently. I mean, it's obviously because they're not making a profit on it, but there's just a lot of questions here that we're not even asking. Right. And who's going to fund the study? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, where is that? Where is that political will? <laughs> oh, I do from? know what you mean. Right. Because yeah. the, the money is going to people that wouldn't maybe want to have this longitudinal study there because then there would be right. a barrier to their entire model. Yep. So, yeah. I I, uh, I want to be respectful of your time, but I, I I think this is a very interesting book for people that are curious people, and also you know it covers so much from healthcare, your own personal story, um, all over the U.S. business equity, economic inequality. What you know, kind of the zeitgeist, I would say, kind of like of what's going on right now, are reflected in this all in this book about blood. And the blood industry, which I never thought I would <laughs> read until until your yeah. publisher um, sent me this, and then the uh, your it's on Atria Books, which is a Simon and Schuster imprint, and um, I I always like okay. buying it direct or bookshop.org is one of my big go tos or your local bookshop. Um, so I, I want I think people should really read it. I don't want to give away too much, but I, I'm curious about personally, like um, you know, like you said, there's a lot of questions here. But what do you yeah. feel like maybe this writing this book has done for you, you know, as an independent journalist? What what has it done to you as a person? Well, I mean, I guess at the 
best, in best case scenario, I have been able to tell the stories of people who have not been paid much attention to previously and to shine some light on a practice that has become a really normal part of American society that is generally either ignored or painted as something bizarre. And it's really just it's become embedded in our society, especially in places that aren't wealthy. So I think for me, you know, I don't feel any better about the industry. I went into it thinking, okay, maybe I'll do this reporting and I won't feel so conflicted about this medication and I'll have a better understanding. That didn't happen. I probably am more conflicted about my medication than ever before. There's nothing I can do about it. Um, But at the, I guess, best case scenario, I'm hoping that it shines some light on the people that do this um, and just how fractured we have become as a society economically. I mean, inequality really has meaningful, serious impacts in people's lives. And I hope that anyone who reads this will consider that. Yes, I agree. I mean, um, you're talking, you know, all of these areas and then and a lot of listeners of the show, not only is it having an impact on their life, there's the psychology aspect of the life. There's the stress aspects. There's the family aspects that, like you said, as a society, there's a global aspect to this. So I really, I'm excited to, for listeners to hear uh, the interview um, is there any, uh, other way for people to get, I know this is the best way is probably to, you know, to buy the book, but, um, is there any other way for people to just like find your articles that you've written for all these different publications as well? Oh goodness. Um, my website is KathleenMcLaughlin.net, So just my name.net. And then I'm on Twitter at, um, my handle is K E M C. Um, I have a piece coming out about all of this in the guardian this week and, frequently contribute to them. So I'm kind of all over the place. Oh, and then I do have a newsletter, which is Substack. um, And my handle is the same as Twitter, which is K-E-M-C. Oh, that's great. I will definitely be putting that in the show notes. All right. I really appreciate your time, Kathleen. Thank you so much for writing. Thank you. This was a great conversation. Yeah. Take care. Absolutely. You too. have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. Or leave us a rating on iTunes as it really helps us get some notoriety. As some of you know already, myself and my colleagues are passionate about preventing future violence in the United States. We have started a nonprofit called the National Violence Prevention Hotline, which is a 501c3 organization. We are endeavoring to gain funding and collaborators that we can start a 24-7 hotline and chat line to reach potential perpetrators before they act violently. It is a bold effort to curb violence and save innocent lives by working to connect with potential offenders while they are in the planning stages of violence, help to de-escalate them, and provide resources so that they can get appropriate professional help wherever they live. 
The National Violence Prevention Hotline is looking to open up a conversation about violence in society, the causes, and the solutions. You can learn more by visiting our website, violencepreventionhotline.org. Join us by signing our petition, sharing the website with your network, donating to the cause, and now you can even write your congressperson from our website. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you are an independent therapist or a small group practice or even a large group practice and you have a billing company that you're not satisfied with, check out Therapist Billing Services. That's www.therapistbillingservicesllc.com. This is Therapist Billing Services created by therapists. If you are looking for an EMDR, International Association Consultant, I am now an EMDR, International Association Consultant, and I can provide 20 hours that you need to become EMDRIA certified. I have consultation groups both online and in person. Check out my website, healthforlifegr.com, and send me a message. If you want to get trained in EMDR therapy and are looking for some great advanced EMDR therapy trainings, check out EMDR Training Solutions and register today. They are now back to doing in-person trainings. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids area at Health for Life Counseling and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest, and while these are based upon the literature they have read and their experience in the respective fields, these should not be viewed as the definitive opinions on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 right now or the National Suicide Crisis Hotline at 988. You can also text 741741 and a live trained crisis counselor will respond. You can support your local bookstore by shopping at www.bookshop.org. You can order online from the comfort of your own home while supporting local businesses near you. If you are a therapist and you are not a member of your local counseling or therapy association, please join. We have to make sure our industry is not turned into gig work. We have to make sure that people get quality mental health services wherever they live, and we need to be able to integrate them into schools and businesses and wherever else the needs are. All right. Until next time, I'm wishing you all a safe and peaceful week. This afternoon I'll live in debt 
By tomorrow be replaced by children How many people rise and think Oh good, the stranger's body's still here Our arrangement hasn't changed I've got a lifetime to consider all the ways I grow more disappointing to you As my beauty warps and fades I suspect you feel the same I was young, I dreamt of a passionate obligation to a roommate Is this the part where I get all I ever wanted? Who said that? Can I get my money back? Just a little Bored in the USA Oh, just a little Bored in the USA Save me white Jesus Bored in the USA Oh They gave me a useless Subprime loan Craftsman home Keep my prescriptions filled Now I can't get off But I can kind of deal Save me, President Jesus, I'm bored in the USA.